0: I'm Dave Williams. Thanks for checking out Conversations.buzz. Greg Stebbin is a journalist and author with strong ties to Russia and Ukraine. When Russia invaded Ukraine, Greg flew to Poland to help refugees there find food and comfort. Ilya Ponomarev is a former member of the Duma, the Russian parliament. In 2014, he was the only member to vote against the annexation of Crimea, endearing him to Ukrainians and forcing him to flee Russia. He has been in exile ever since and is now working on plans to replace the current Russian regime with the world's next great democracy. Before that can happen, of course, Putin needs to go, willingly or otherwise. Together, Greg and Ilya have written this book called Does Putin Have to Die? Subtitled, The Story of How Russia Becomes a Democracy After Losing to Ukraine. Greg Steben and I talked about it. Your book is really something. Um, first of all, let's just talk about what the book is, what it's about, and who Ilya Ponomarev. Did I say that correctly?
1: Uh, well, first of all, don't feel bad. It's Ponomarev, and it Ponomerif. took me six months to get it right. So okay, uh, <laughs>
0: <it's>, <laughs> all right, it's, who, it's a
1: learned skill. Who is he? So Ilya Ponomarev is a um, he's a guy with a fascinating history, and I'm going to tell you some things here today. And believe me, when we're done here, no matter how much I tell you about his background, I've barely scratched the surface. Mm -hmm. So he was the first thing that really begins to set the stage for why he's part of this conversation and why this book exists is he was a member of the Russian state Duma or the Russian parliament. He's a Russian. In 2014, he was the only member of the Russian parliament To vote against the annexation of Crimea. In retaliation for that, he was forced into exile. He has not been back into his own country since 2014. Now, interestingly enough, if you look at when he served in the Duma, he served until 2016 when they literally passed a law called the Panamera Law to throw him out, but he was still serving in the Russian parliament from the United States because he was not allowed to go home. Can you imagine that happening in the United States? No, I can't even imagine
0: how it would have been possible, feasible at all. I, I, I assume you mean by email and stuff.
1: Well, so he stayed in touch with his constituents yeah. uh, through social media and, and you know other platforms. He, uh, I, I don't understand the exact logistics of it, but he basically smuggled what is called his voting card to a friend of his in the Duma who would then vote for him. Um. So. They would talk. And they allowed via, that. Well, because, you know, even in our Congress, people vote by proxy. Right. So. Right. So they allowed it probably in, for and, until they could literally pass a law to throw them out. And then that's what they did. But it took them a while. to. There is law in Russia. I mean, sometimes I think people think it's a lawless place. Right. It's not completely lawless. There are laws. Yeah. But it is also lawless in that the laws don't matter for much over time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, and that's, that's the fascinating difference between our understanding and our imagination of Russia. It's One of the things that fascinates me. Um, first of all, why did he vote against the annexation of Crimea and being the only member of the Duma to do so?
1: Well, it's, you know, it's, it's very complicated. And it's complicated clearly because it's a complicated issue, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also complicated by russian history and, and and i learned a lot in working on this book with him um, and i don't, can't remember if you mentioned the name of the book or not it's called does putin have to die uh, the subtitle which i think is more important is the story of how russia becomes a democracy after losing to ukraine and i'm yeah. going to tell you by the time we're done here some things that are literally just happening right now in that part of the world yeah. that are going to become big news but they're not yet so I'm, I'm looking forward to that
0: that's the thing that's really really truly fascinating about your book is that uh it's a book it's a full book that's published and it's in the store you can buy it on amazon and all that stuff but it's a book about the history that is unfolding right now yes. on a daily basis as if it was almost prophetic in many yes. ways how did you become uh, uh how did you become how did you meet uh, Ponomarev? uh
1: It's easier if you just call him Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
0: How did you meet him? How did you become attached and, and get into this project with him?
1: So when, this, when Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, for a lot of reasons we can talk about or gloss over, it's up to you, I took this invasion very personally. I am Russian. I mean, I don't identify as someone, you know it's, it's not a big part of my personal identity, but my, you know, my grandparents fled from Russia at the turn of the 20th century. You know, I always grew up hearing about Russia, the things I would hear about Russia. You know, we didn't hear a lot of good things about Russia. If you're my age and your age, Uh, you know, Reagan did a lot to transform our relationship as a country with Russia, but, you know, frankly, things have gone to hell there again. So I don't have a lot of love in my heart for the government of Russia, And I know, or I believe that some of my family actually came from Ukraine, but I took this invasion very personally, just knowing what I knew about the Ukrainian people and also my understanding of the world situation and what this probably meant if Putin was victorious. And frankly, I am more attached to the situation or was more attached to the situation in China relative to Taiwan Mm. than I was to Ukraine and Russia. But in my mind, they're really the same set of circumstances are very similar. Not the same, obviously, but similar. And I actually called a friend of mine who is is a bit of a world scholar when it comes to history and geopolitics. Uh, He also has some very close personal relationships in Taiwan. He's Polish. He grew up in Polish, uh, in communist Poland. And the day of the invasion, I called him in a panic and I said, is China going to invade Taiwan tomorrow? My fear was these two countries might be in cahoots. And, you know, if you think the Russian invasion of Ukraine has created complete chaos in the world order, imagine what would have happened if China invaded Taiwan the next day or the next week. That was one of my big concerns. So I began to look for ways I could do something, anything to help the people of Ukraine. And I ended up going over to Warsaw for a month with an online TV platform called Beams. I did an online show there every day about what I was seeing and the people I was talking to. You know, I, w- I worked with World Central Kitchen and served coffee to refugees as they got off the train in Warsaw. So these were people that literally just came across the border, got on a train, got to Warsaw, and were finally able to sit down in a safe place and began to think, what am I going to do next in my life? And, and there I was to hand them a cup of coffee. You didn't uh, speak
0: Polish, I take
1: it. I don't. I don't well, and, and they speak Ukrainian and Russian. Some of them speak Polish. No, I, you know, are some of them speak English as well, but mostly, you know, it was the language of a smile and handshake. And, you know, if someone needed a hug, um, I visited the, excuse me, I visited the second largest, uh, refugee camp at that time in Poland. I mean, you know, just literally thousands of people lined up in like an empty warehouse with cots and, you know, and then I would do a show and report on this every day. In the course of doing that show, the people that own this platform met Ilya through mutual friendships, and we convinced him that it would be useful for him to to begin to communicate in a more regular basis with people in the U.S. And so since sometime in April, I've been interviewing him once a week, every Thursday for 30 minutes about the situation there. And as he and I began to talk and I began to realize... First, let me tell you a little bit more about him because it it adds even more context. When he was thrown out of Russia, he was in San Jose, California, Silicon Valley. Mm. And he lived there for two years, again, still serving in the Duma from California.
0: He was there because he was a a businessman in Russia with uh, strong connections to the electronics and technology agents. uh,
1: Well, that's true, but it's even deeper than that. His district is a member of the Duma was the third largest city in Russia, it's called Novosibirsk, and it is the Silicon Valley of Russia. Okay. So as a, as a member of parliament, he spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley and Boston and Austin and New York and DC, lobbying to build strong relationships between the US tech community and the Russian tech community. And, and this was a period where you know, business interests and, and partnerships and collaborations were happening. And He was behind a lot of that, so he was often in the US working with CEOs and, and, and our political leaders to, to bring jobs to Russia and you know back and forth, all kinds of collaborations to enable both of our tech communities to be better off. So, uh, that's why he was in Silicon Valley. He was on an official Duma trip or, or parliament trip when he found out actually two things. He woke up in the morning. His phone was, you know, you hear this happens to people, right? His phone was full of texts and social media and stuff. He learned two things when he woke up. The first thing he learned was he was dead. He had been murdered by Ukrainians in Crimea, it said in the Russian press, which makes no sense since he, he supported the Crimeans. Why would they kill him? Right. And the next story was, even though he was dead, he was also exiled and unable to return home.
0: And this is a remarkable. That's all pretty final when you put it all together. Yeah.
1: yeah, I mean, we got you one way or the other. Right. (laughs) And this is actually a pretty remarkable part of the book because, you know, he describes, you know, he's in a hotel in Silicon Valley, not a cheap place to stay in a hotel. He's reading this. Suddenly he realizes, like, I'm screwed, right? You know, he reaches for his wallet and he's got $21. Yeah. He runs out of the hotel room with his official state Duma ATM card and runs to a bank to get some cash, but they've turned it off. Mm. He calls his wife to make sure she and his kids are safe because they're back in Russia and they turn off his phone. Uh. And he says, literally he's standing on a street corner, you know, in Silicon Valley under the, I mean, it's hard to imagine worse circumstances unless you're in Ukraine being bombed today. Right. Right and he said suddenly once he you know he connected with friends he got a phone he made sure his wife and his kids were okay he borrowed some money he got a car and once he knew that he was you know his needs were taken care of for the next 24 hours he realized it was the most liberating feeling of his life yeah. he was free
0: i was going to ask you free. i was going to ask you to talk about that yeah go yeah. ahead yeah
1: so he was before he he uh, ran for office He was actually a successful business guy. He worked in the oil and gas business, and then he went into the tech sector. He had actually been part of a company that in, I think, 2001 had built an interactive TV platform, a Russian company, and they were raising money, and their main investor was Ted Turner. Ted Turner was literally flying over on his jet to sign the papers over to Moscow. And when literally the same time Putin began to crack down on the media in Russia, So, of course, Ted Turner is not going to invest in a TV platform in Russia when the leader of the country is cracking down on me, right? Ted Turner offered to try to work with Putin to resolve this, that, you know, there was no resolution. Of course, he made no investment. And that really, for Ilya, was the birth of him as a politician on top of being a successful business guy and successful tech guy. His thought was, I don't ever want to go through this again as a Russian citizen. I don't ever want the government messing with my plans. And I don't want anyone else to ever be in that position as well. And and, and as he says in the book, that was really the birth of his political career.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating story to that point. One thing that caught my attention, first of all, uh, I'm sure that uh, people listening or watching this are, are wondering, why am I talking to you instead of him? (laughs) <laughs> the, the, the book, I don't mean to say it sounds rude, rude, but I mean, that's the question, right? Because the book is written in the first person. It's yes. written as if Ilya wrote it. And I assume that most of it is a direct quotation of, of uh, things that he said to you. So maybe you can kind of explain that relationship. Sure.
1: Well, I would love nothing more than for you to talk to him directly. Uh, in some ways, what's happening is like a political campaign. Uh-huh. And I'm his proxy. You know, when someone's running for president, uh, which, by the way, is kind of what's happening. Yeah. Uh, and I'll tell you more about, that. you know, I alluded to things are happening right now as we speak. You know, you don't always get to interview the candidate. Sometimes you interview right. the proxy. It's right. just, there's only so many hours in the day gets even more complicated when that person is. He now lives in Kiev, so he's seven hours ahead of us on the East Coast. You know, time zones get complicated uh, right now. They don't have power part of the time. That makes I was going to say he lives in Kiev. Uh, Yes.
0: I know from, I know from reading your book that he he absolutely loves Kiev.
1: Yes, he does. And,
0: uh, and that kind of broke my heart when I saw where he said that, because it was coincidentally the same time that the Russians were just tearing the hell out of that yes. city.
1: Yeah. Um, so
0: do you still talk to him?
1: Oh, I, you know, we, we, we used to do a show every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern on this beams platform. Uh We literally started yesterday. I I don't know what day you're going to use this, but on 1024, instead of doing a 30 minute weekly interview, we decided to do a 10 minute daily interview because the situation is changing so fast that, you know, by the time Thursday came, there was just so much to talk about that had already happened. We wouldn't have time to really talk about, you know, well, what's coming next and what are you working on?
0: Yeah, that's so, a good point. Let me let me point out that uh, we are talk. we this conversation we're having right now is October twenty fifth, twenty twenty two, and certainly by the time you know it's going to be in circulation for as long as people want to look it up, and things are going to change and things are going to happen. So it's going to be kind of interesting from that perspective, and uh, uh, maybe we can uh, figure out how uh, people can check in on your on your ten minute day. Well,
1: you can join us every Monday through Friday at four p.m. Eastern. Uh-huh. 11 o'clock Kiev time. Why 11 o'clock Kiev time? Because they're under curfew. I don't know if most people realize that. You cannot be on the street after 11 o'clock. So we knew Ilya would be home at 11 o'clock every night because he has to be. And uh, so that's when we turn on the microphones and, and the cameras and start talking. It's a, it's a very easy address to get to. The name of the platform is Beams, B E A M Z. So to get to the show, it's B E A M Z dot live slash stop Putin. So stop beams Putin. with a Z, b-e-a-m-z dot live slash stop Putin. Um, and it's free. It's it's interactive. So, you know, much like a Facebook live or something, there's a chat. People ask him questions. He answers them. If we can't get to the question that day, you know, we get to, to the next day. And uh, it's been a really great outlet for him. But also, we have a very regular audience. You know, they're really getting to know him and And we're just finding it's a great way and a great tool to begin to build his presence here in the West, like the one he has, even in Russia. He's still very well known, and he's obviously very well known in Ukraine and and all other parts of Eastern Europe and and the rest of Europe as well. Can you talk for a moment?
0: I I was really interested in in the book where, and I can't remember exactly what he was saying, but uh, it had to do with the fact that the the, uh, relationship between Russians and Ukrainians, or essentially um, one of, uh, of uh, I guess you could say that their they're, they're family living in different parts of, of basically the same country. They, they speak different languages, but, but most of them speak both languages or something like that. Can you, can you explain the whole, and I got the sense that uh, Ukraine, that Russia is almost a result Of the ukrainian culture rather than the other way around as we might have assumed
1: so i'm going to explain the best i can and i don't want anybody to think that i'm putting words in Ilya's mouth because you know i'm new to this he's been living in his whole life right And, and one of the first things you have to realize when you live in the west and i saw this very clearly as soon as i got to warsaw i spent a month there you know our view of the world and our view of history is very different than in that part of the world. So sometimes you hear things and it doesn't make any sense to us, right? It makes sense to them. So you always have to just, you know, give up your sort of Western centric view of the world and realize sometimes people view the world in different ways and view their history in, in different ways. And you, you asked a big question, complicated set of questions I mean we could talk for three or four hours about this one question I'm going to try to shortcut it into a couple of things okay some of this I've learned from Ilya and some of it I've learned from other Ukrainians I've gotten to know so one of the things to understand is that um before the annexation of Crimea in 2014 Ukrainians largely had affinity for Russians they were Ukrainians but they had, you know, they were like cousins. And, you mm-hmm. know, when you see your cousin, you give them a hug and you grab them a beer, right? Yeah. That, that was my impression of how most Ukrainians felt about Russians. In many parts of Ukraine, people spoke Russian. The street signs were in Russian. You know, lots of other things were just, you know, ru- they were part of Russia 30 years ago. So it's natural that parts of the culture and the language would spill over and there was no reason for them to to rebel against that so the the uh the invasion of crimea happened in 2014 and and as soon as that happened you began to see a very dramatic change in most parts of ukraine the street signs came down they were replaced with street signs in in ukrainian people didn't speak russian they mostly spoke Ukrainian, and they are two different languages. Um, now, I want to make a point because this is something that's been said many times, and I don't believe it's true. People have said, Russians have said, Russian has said, you know, if you walk down the street in Ukraine even today and you're speaking Russian, people, you know, they'll attack you or throw rocks at you or things mm. like that. I've spoken to many Russians and Russian-speaking Ukrainians, and they said that's just not true. I mean Ilya went there in 2016 I think in 2018 he spoke Russian he quickly learned Ukrainian because he wanted to assimilate and be part of the culture but he has said over and over again no one has ever given me any grief for speaking Russian they're just not a they're not a uh, that's just not part of the culture and Russia is part of their culture they're they're not denying that right. and the next point you made about you know, is, is Ukraine really a child of Russia? Or as the book suggests, is Russia really a child of Ukraine? Right. I mean, this is, a, a, again, a huge topic. You know, I'm not an expert in, in that part of the world or their history. But Ilya makes a very compelling case as a Russian transported to Ukraine, learning about Ukrainian history and suddenly realizing his Russian history was really Ukrainian history. And he has example after example after example. After Going example back of,
0: hundreds of years. Going
1: back, yes, long, long time. And so you begin to really realize, I think the big takeaway here without reading many historical books about this to get a deeper understanding is the situation is way more complicated than we think it is. Right. And the mere fact that Russia is larger and has more military might Shouldn't be the thing that determines whether they get to own a piece of land in a country or not. Ukraine is its own nation. It has its own co- culture. It was a demo- is a democratic country, and it has been for thirty years. And but their history as an independent nation of people goes back far, 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 far beyond that. And we right. should honor that.
0: And far beyond what we can even conceive uh, in terms of a, a national history or yes, social history. Yes. What led to the invasion of Ukraine in the first place? I, we understand what the, the explanation has come from Putin. You know, some military exercise or something, whatever you call it. A special operation, right? Special operation. Seriously. What made him do it?
1: I don't know that I... I, I, I can't tell you the answer to that. I mean, yeah. I've heard different stories. I'm not even sure the stories you hear today are... Com- completely I, I think it's I, I don't know that it's known to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, I I think Ilya speculates in the book that it had something to do with the fact that Biden was seen as weak in Russia.
0: Yeah. And that they say, yeah. frankly
1: could get away with it in three days. So why not?
0: I'm sure there's we- many
1: other reasons behind it. Um and, and I think when you deal with personalities like a Vladimir Putin, it's you know, he may not even understand why he did it.
0: That was another one of the questions I actually have down here. There's a lot of reference in the book to Putinism. Uh,
1: what is that? <laughs> I wish Ilya was here. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me answer that in the best way I can. Okay, and, and, and let me let me explain something about my role here too, so that. Okay. It, it's that's a, it, this is a disclaimer for, yeah. you know, when I went to Poland, I didn't have, I hadn't spent my life studying the Ukrainian people or the Russian people or Eastern Europe. I was just, just affronted by what was happening and wanted to help. I, when I went to Warsaw, I didn't know that I was going to meet Ilya. I didn't know I was going to write a book about this, you know, so I'm, I'm learning as fast as I can, yeah. but I'm, you know, I don't teach at a university. I haven't re- ever written a book like this before um and so you need to you know my disclaimer is you need to take what i say in that context i'm doing my best to understand and i'm not there yet but i'm working on it every well
0: that's that's absolutely fine like i said uh, the job you've done and putting the book together is just absolutely is is really fascinating to me um but uh, okay let me me, let's jump back the other thing and i i tend to think because of all my time in radio i tend to think and in terms of what the listener is wondering right now yes you know? yes and uh we have to go back to the title of the book which we really haven't addressed does putin have to die in order for this all to get cleared up or end or something
1: <laughs> my goal with this book is to have everybody asking that same question mm-hmm. and this is probably a good time for me to tell you what's going on uh, in eastern europe right now okay and this this is This is new news. As I was working on this book with Ilya, well, let me step back even further. You know, I think you asked me a few minutes ago, you know, you assumed that everything in this book was a quote from Ilya. Mm -hmm. It's, it's even more, it runs even deeper than that. When I suggested to him that he write a book, and, and I didn't tell him up front that, oh, and by the way, I already have a book contract for you if you want it. His response was, I've already written a book. Oh, great. Uh, but he wrote a 700-page book in Russian. You know, right. If you know anything about Russian literature, 700 pages is a short book, <laughs> not a long book. Uh, so he had already written a book in Russian for Russians about the same topic, but he started writing it 10 years ago. So, 10 years ago, and even be- before that, he was already thinking, how do we take back our country for ourselves and make it a democracy? Remember, he spent a lot of time in the US. He understands, you know, first of all, I find him fascinating in the position he's in because he understands our way of life. He's lived here, he understands capitalism. He's been successful as a capitalist businessman. Just as an aside, he started a company in Ukraine. It was the first company ever from Ukraine to go public in the U S so he's, you know, in that way, he's aligned with the rest of the Western world. Right. And, And, and that's important because if Russia's going to be successful going forward, they need to be partners with us. They don't have to do it exactly the way we do it, right. But they have to respect the way we do it and consider what's valuable in the way we do it in making their own form of government going forward. So, he said, "I've already written a book." He sent me the manuscript in Russian, it was 700 pages. I believe it or not, translated it on Google Translate in about wow. 10 minutes. It wasn't a perfect translation by any means, right? But uh, but I read the whole book, and there were times where I'd say to myself, you know, I'm just gonna I'll read for another 10 minutes, and then I got to go do something else. And an hour later, I'd still be reading. It was <laughs> that good, even when translated by Google Translate. Yeah. And most of this book was taking those 700 pages it, this was my part of the job picking out was what was most relevant for today and what was most relevant for the, for the Western reader, and then adding to it to make it, to give it context for the, the Western reader, and also to make it current to what's happening today, because, you, know, he stopped writing this before the invasion. So, And he has touched every word of this book. I mean, anything I edited, anything I added, he has touched it, improved it. It's his book. He just had some help from me. Mm. So the question, does Putin have to die? As we suggest in the book, really, as Ilya suggests in the book, it's really up to Putin. You know, he can leave. He can leave Ukraine. He can leave Russia. And he's got plenty of money. He can buy all the security he needs. But if he doesn't leave, he's gonna die. And it's not gonna be the Ukrainians who take him out. It's gonna be the guy in the next chair.
0: Yeah. Because so that's how it works.
1: And well, got, that's how yeah.
0: We're 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 getting uh you know, we're getting inklings, we're getting rumors and hearsay and you know, backroom reports that uh, that there is a growing uh, uh, he's there. There's a growing number of people within either within his own circle or certainly within uh, the Kremlin who are so concerned about the way things are going at this point, and the the fact. I, I think I even read uh, one reference today that that said there was. The Russians are understanding there's no way, way they can win this war. All they can hope to do is bring it to an end. And that means to figure out a way to replace Putin. And is, is it gotten to that point at this, at, at this stage, do you think?
1: I don't, I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a, it's a continuum, right? Yeah. And, and you'll know it got to that point when he's in a box uh-huh. or he's gone. And so you know, it, it's not to that point until that point happens. Like, I don't think you can kind of. You know, it's not like running a marathon and you're, and you're at the halfway mark.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, a few other things about Ilya and, and then I'll tell you about the latest news. You'll remember a month or so ago, there was a woman assassinated named Daria Dugina. Yes. Her father, Alexander Dugan is the easiest way I can explain his role in Russia and in the, in the Putin universe is, you know, people used to say Karl Rove was Bush's brain. Right people have described Alexander Dugan as Putin's brain. So he's has that kind of level of influence. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very, very supportive of this invasion and this war. His daughter is a TV person, was a TV personality. Also very, very supportive of this war and this effort in Putin. And about a month and a half ago, her car was blown up. She was assassinated. Uh, It is the belief that the target was actually him or the two of them together.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: when that happened a group came forward called the national Republican army no one had mostly no one had ever heard of them before I'm going to tell you kind of a funny story about that Uh, it was the first time they had ever spoken publicly and the way they spoke publicly was they took responsibility for the assassination and then released a manifesto now, previous to this, and this is something we had talked many times with Ilya about on these weekly shows, there were power stations being blown up, cars being blown up that belonged to you know members of the military or supporters of Putin, uh, military recruitment stations. You know, people would throw Molotov cocktails through the windows. There was lots of small underground partisan efforts, revolutionary efforts to oppose Putin. This was the first really big organized effort and the way that this group, the national Republican army announced itself and released its manifesto was through Ilya. They gave him the manifesto. Uh They took responsibility through him and he announced it to the world. So the way you heard about it was through him. Uh So, um, what was the point I was making about that? Uh, I don't remember where I was going with that. Uh, it, well, one of the points I want to make is he's involved at that level. Yeah. If you ask him about the, the Kirsch Bridge or the Crimea Bridge being blown up, I mean, we talked about this with him on the show. You know, He didn't do it. He wasn't responsible for it, but he knows everything there is to know about it because he knows who did it, and they were communicating with him through the whole, you know, he knew something was coming. And why did it happen? This is a story that came right from him. You know, Putin's birthday was October 7th. Everybody was his 70th birthday. Right. Ilya has been saying, you know, for months, it will be his last birthday. Or we believe it'll be his last birthday. Wow. Uh, everyone expected something to happen on October 7th. The bridge blew up on October 8th. So what I learned from Ilya and my audience learned is the reason the bridge blew up on the wrong day is the guy driving the explosives didn't do his job? The delivery, uh. Anybody ever get a late delivery? <laughs> <laughs> so the guy didn't know he was driving a truck through of, explos- of explosives. You know, for some reason he took the day off on the seventh, maybe to celebrate Putin's birthday. He took the truck on the eighth, and the bridge blew up a day later. It was still a heck of a way of saying happy birthday, Mr. Putin. Look what we can do, and we're going to do more.
0: I think we have we have so many misconceptions or. Uh, assumptions about uh, life in Russia and the government and the way society works. And you made a reference early on in this conversation to the fact that sure they have laws there, and by and large they follow their laws as as well as we follow laws in this country. It's well, just a, not,
1: I wouldn't go that far.
0: No, but they have laws. Okay. Well, I was just <laughs> going to say, except when it's inconvenient, and and yes. and who and the people in charge just say, okay, in this case, just forget that we're going to. We're just going to do it this other way, but um, what intrigues me is the idea that Ilya is essentially able to, you know, uh, conduct business, do his conversations, write a book, talk on the radio, talk on the internet, and uh, he doesn't have to hide for his life. Is that just the inve- invention of Hollywood that we've all led to believe that? You know, there are so many uh, spies and deadly terrors out there for people like him.
1: Well, he does have a machine gun. As he says, I keep a machine gun by my door. Oh. Uh, he does have security. So I don't think he moves as freely as you and I do. You know, the, the, yeah. the expression falling out of a window is meaningful to us all today because a lot of Russians in exile. Right fallen out of windows including friends you know you talk to him long enough and someone's going to come up who died in a really unpleasant way yeah. because of the putin administration he you know, taught many people yeah Ilya talks
0: about what he refers to as his big project or the the big project for the country yes and he talks about uh the is it new class or yes. new yeah. yes and it, that's interesting to me too, because uh, I'm actually got. A, I wrote from the, from the book to take power. We need to realize the commonality of our true interests and gain a common or shared class consciousness. This idea of class uh, is is uh, so thoroughly Russian, as far as I can tell. I mean, because it's a concept that we're supposedly trying to get away <laughs> from in this country, although uh, we're we're having pro- trouble with pronouns now. Um, so. I'm 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 just interested in uh in what his big project is and some of this suggests and you kind of suggested it yourself a little while ago that uh he may be willing to take over as uh, president of Russia if that opportunity availed itself.
1: Well, let me let me uh, I think let me state it more assertively. Okay. <laughs> so the subtitle of the book is the story of how Russia becomes a democracy after losing Ukraine. Right. I would actually propose that in the end, how this war will end is with both Russia and Ukraine winning. Interesting. How does Russia, I mean, how Ukraine wins is easy, right? The borders right. go back to pre annexation of Crimea. They get reparations for the damage. You know, we, we, can, we can see the obvious victory for Ukraine. How is it a mm-hmm. victory for Russia? Putin's freedom. gone, freedom. Yeah. And it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be easy at all. But what Ilya talks about, really the point of the book, there's a lot of history about Russia and a lot of history about him. That's Mm -hmm. for context. But the point of the book, you called it the big project. I'm glad you picked up on that. I mean, to me, it was kind of a funny way of talking about something when I first read the book. And then I just realized it's it's the Russian way and and we need to honor it, right? Uh The big project is Russia becomes a democracy. Yeah. And his vision, and, and I'm not telling any secrets here, it's, it's written right there in the book. He envisions that there is an interim government formed, that you know Putin is gone, there's an interim government formed for a specified period of time by law, let's call it two years, and the goal of the government is to write a new constitution, write new laws, create a new judicial system and have free and fair elections for the next leader of a democratic Russia, probably called Free Russia. <clears throat> Excuse me. He would like to be the president or the leader, whatever that leader is called, of the country for those two years. Mm-hmm. He also states, and I, I know him well, I think is you know you can Google him and see he's been saying the same things for the last 10 or 15 years, so I believe him and I trust him. He really does not want to be the leader of a country for life. Okay. He wants to be the leader of a country for two years. He wants to get it to that point, and he wants it to be specified that whoever that leader is, him or someone else, that leader should never be able to participate in Russian politics again. Two years, Interesting. get the job done, you're done. And why is that important? Because what Yeltsin did was create a government that was good for Yeltsin. What Putin has done is create a government that's good for Putin. If you know you get two years and you're out, and by the way, there's other countries that have successfully followed this recipe. Um, If you know as the leader, you're two years and then you're done for life, you have no motivation to build a government that serves you and what you should be doing and what he's determined to do is build a government that serves the people. It's Fascinating. So let me, let me add one more piece to that, because I keep teasing that something's going on. Yeah. So let me tell you what's going on. Okay. And I'm, and cool. I'm really excited about it. <clears throat> in early November, there will be in Warsaw what's called the First People's Congress of Russia. He and some others have pulled together like a constitutional convention. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's a good name for it. There are many, many elected officials of Russia who have been pushed into exile. Many thousands and thousands, maybe millions of Russians have left the country. You know, they were encouraged to leave by Putin. You know, if they opposed him, they were encouraged to leave. And that's been a huge brain trust. And part of Ilya's concern and concern of so many other Russians who see a future of democracy for the country is, How are we going to succeed at this if we don't bring those Russians back? You know, we can't, you know, we need everybody pulling their weight and making this country a free democratic nation. So there's going to be a Congress in Warsaw of people who were elected to office in Russia, forced into exile, who never supported the original annexation of Crimea or this war. And they are going to sit down and start writing that new constitution and those new laws, or at least creating the framework for it. So the idea being, as he, as Ilya says, we're creating a parallel parliament so that when Putin is gone, the people of Russia know us, they trust us, they can see our work, it's transparent, and we are ready to step into office the minute we're needed. That is a huge deal. And, and the next thing that's happening now is that... Um, they're going after the support of other countries to support this parallel parliament. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what form that will take because it's, you know, it's, it's not typical, right? Right. But I, I believe the highly political, highly political and, and dangerous, frankly. Yeah. And I think the next step is now getting other countries to sign on and voice their support in whatever way they can diplomatically.
0: So this is going to happen in early November. Yes. Yes. Will that be something that uh, is, uh, is, is well-known as it's happening? Is this going to be a big matter of, you know, the nightly news? or?
1: If, this... if I have my way, it will be.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's, there's security issues. Sure. There's, um, you know, there's a lot of issues in that. Some of them are cultural. So, you know, I'm not quite sure how transparent this will be in the beginning. Um, but I don't think there's anybody that wants this to be secret. Uh, because, because the minute you start doing things in secret, you have have a government, right? Right, Exactly. And I will tell you that, uh, the last I heard there were 54 delegates who would be attending. And obviously that number is going to keep growing. So this is a real thing. This is, Mm -hmm. you know, when you begin, when you announce you're forming a new government and begin to do the steps required to do that, like a constitutional convention, um, it's real. And
0: before, except for the people who were from Russia and know better, but uh, as, the, as far as the rest of us are concerned, before now you would say, "Well, that's just crazy. These people are just going to get wiped out. The Russians are just going to, you know, come rush rushing out and 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 totally wipe them off." But we know now that the the Russian the Russian military doesn't have the power and the might and uh, and uh, you know the the great uh, the great fear factor that they had because Ukraine has been able to hold them off with lots of, with lots of help, yes. obviously. Right. But, um, so many things are changing. And it, it, one of the things, cause I I'm old enough to remember, um, uh, the missiles of October, I was mm-hmm. like 11 years old at that time. And I remember how scared all the adults in my life were to the point of sometimes being at tears, thinking that we were, all in our final days. And I remember the, uh, the views of, I saw Khrushchev pounding that shoe, the, the podium with his shoe. I remember that stuff. And I grew up with the, the Cold War and being taught to climb, you know, crawl under the desk if we should be attacked and all this stuff. And the But the insidious part about it for us in this country was that the people of Russia... of the the Soviet Union don't have access to the information. They don't know how we live here. They don't don't know how bad they have it maybe. Um, That's changed so drastically and so dramatically and so quickly with this new generation, this current generation that uh, we see now suddenly tens of thousands of Russians in the streets protesting Putin and the
1: government. That's a mind
0: blowing uh, achievement. And it's happening in other countries as
1: well. Well, it's happening in other countries more than it is in Russia. Okay. And often they're not even Russians that are protesting. I mean, that is one of the concerns and I'm like, you know, we're probably of a similar age. Um, And so I've had the same upbringing or similar upbringing to you. And this is one of the things I've really grappled with. Um, For instance, Look, I worked in Silicon Valley. I was, I was part of the first and second internet bubble. I mean, it's like in really? my blood. Yeah. And I think, well, you know, surely the internet's going to solve all these problems. It's not that simple. And it's not that simple for a lot of reasons. Yes, people can get information in Russia, but it's hard and it's dangerous. So yes, they can get it, but there's some risk involved. But there's also, and I'm going to draw an analogy here, and I don't mean it literally. I just mean it, to get an emotional response, Mm -hmm. you ever gone to the pound Yeah, and there's some dogs that have just given up Yeah, and they're just laying in the, they have no expectation that they're ever going to have a dog's life. They've been kicked, they've been beaten, they've been deprived. And again, I don't mean, I'm not saying the Russians are dogs, but I I do want to tell you an interesting story about that. You know, in some ways, And, you know, my friend that I mentioned earlier who grew up in communist Poland, will talk about this a lot. It's hard for us to understand what it's like to grow up in a place where you live in fear like that. Mm -hmm. How do you, you can't just turn that off. You can't just change people. People have to learn that there is more to life and that they can speak out and they can have freedom. And, you know, they had a taste of this during the years with Gorbachev and Yeltsin, but it all went to hell. So in some ways, and we talk about this in the book, the view of democracy is one of by many Russians is is one of skepticism or suspicion because it didn't go well the first time. And their economy went, you know, you know, went completely south and and it kind of opened the door to someone like Putin. And by the way, if you look at the cover of the book, you can actually see it over my shoulder if you can read it. The foreword of the book was written by Vladimir Putin. Right. Yeah. It's a speech he gave in 2001, a couple of weeks after 9 11, to the German Congress. And in that speech, I have it open on my desktop right here. If you read this and didn't know who said it, you might think it was a speech given by Ronald Reagan. Right. It's about democracy, it's about freedom. It's about human rights. It's about the human spirit. That's what he was saying in 2001. Now, I really struggle with how he went from there to who he is today. Really? You ask Ilya, Ilya will say same guy, but I still can't get my head around how that happened, but I really bring it up to make the point that if you're a Russian, you've been jerked back and forth and back and forth. And so a big part of what has to happen for them to be a successful democracy is trust. They have to trust that it really is their government and they really are free. And it's not like all the times in the past where they were just pawns that were there to be taken advantage of.
0: That's going to take some helpful change and then a generation to buy into it. Right.
1: Well, and do they have that much time? So that's where the new class comes in that you brought up.
0: Right.
1: Excuse me. Um, I think one of the things I like about this book is, in the end, Ilya makes a really strong case for something that will be very hard for people in the West to do, but they should start thinking about it. And that is, you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine, millions and peop- millions of people around the world just said, "I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to help." right they mm-hmm. they went on twitter or facebook or instagram or snapchat or tiktok or they raised money they sent money they contacted their congress people they you know sent nasty letters to russians they did whatever they could do this is going to feel really uncomfortable but i think russia's shot at being a democracy in a free country is going to take us doing that again maybe not the money part but the spirit part we're going to have to support them in being free. They saw we did it for Ukraine. I think we have mm-hmm. to do it for them too, so they know the world is behind them. Because they've been isolated for a long time, right. with leaders they couldn't trust. They need leaders they can trust and know the world is behind them and wants this for them if they're willing to fight for it.
0: I think that message can get out there. And I do and I do have uh, enough faith in in Americans I don't know. I don't trust Americans to go out and vote with any kind of <laughs> you know, self education, but I do think that our hearts are in the right place to the point where we want to help people in other countries and other ways with other ways of lives, of life, getting, uh, getting, making things better. And especially when the big picture is that it makes life better and more for hopeful us, for the
1: entire world. For everybody. That's yeah. exactly right. So I want to go back to this idea of the new class that you yeah. mentioned and it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's it's a quarter of the book. It's that important. Um, well, there's two pieces to it. One is, and, and in some ways this is unrelated and in some ways it's not. Uh, you have to realize now that one of the worst things Putin did by sending armed soldiers into Ukraine is to send armed soldiers into Ukraine. Let me explain why. First of all, you know, this is part of that you know being manipulated story. Russians have been told for years that Ukrainians live like dogs. You know, they're dirty, they're impoverished, they live in hovels, they're uncivilized. So then he put weapons in hundreds of thousands of soldiers' hands and sent them to Ukraine. And you can go online and find story after story after story, especially in the beginning of the war, about Russians going into people's houses and going like, you live here alone? <laughs> you can't. You're Ukrainian. There should be ten families here yeah. in this nice house. I'm, I'm, when I say nice house, I mean a house like your house or my house. Right. You know, a, a nice Western style house. They would go to some small village and walk around the park and think they were in Kiev, because in Russia only the capital has nice parks. If you don't live in the capital or Saint Petersburg or one of a couple other cities you don't get things like parks parks are things you show off to foreigners who were visiting and all of a sudden those russian soldiers are beginning to see the ukrainians don't live like dogs you know who lives like dogs
0: we do they do yeah
1: Yeah, not a they they do and and they and they saw it with their own eyes it's not you and i telling them yeah and then what's the second part of this is such a problem for putin you know there's very strong arms control in russia it's hard to get a weapon unless they handed you one (laughs) and trained you. And so those soldiers are going to go back and they know in their heart. Now they've been lied to. They know in their heart that Ukrainians live better than they do. They know in their heart who did this to them, Putin, Putinism, their own government, and they have a weapon. That's not a good recipe for longevity. Yeah. How does it all
0: work itself out or how does it all end?
1: <laughs> well, I wrote a book or helped yeah. write a book uh, yeah. that I think suggests an end. Does Putin have to die? I mean, I, I, my goal, this book has been out as an ebook for about a week. Uh-huh. The hardcover hits stores and Amazon on February 15th. You know, my goal is that as people are discussing what happens next in Russia, does Putin have to die becomes, you know... In, in, the the catchphrase for what will happen next. Right. And, you know, our goal is that people begin to say, you know, we have to support Russia to be a democracy. Because, you know, if, if Russia doesn't become a democracy, if Putin, if Putin dies for some reason tomorrow, or he leaves for some reason tomorrow, one of two things is probably going to happen, right? And one of them is you get someone who's like Putin or worse. Or
0: worse, right.
1: So if there's not somebody prepared to step in and take that role with a vision for something different, for something better, what you're probably going to get is another Putin. And then this whole cycle is going to, you know, how long is it going to take to get that person out? Why don't we just support the Russians in making the change as hard as it will be for them? And it might be hard for us too. It'll be way harder for them. Why don't we just support them in doing it now?
0: Seems right. One more time. Um, Beams, B-E-A-M-Z? Yes. Dot
1: live. Dot live. Slash stop Putin. And, you know, at the beginning of this interview, I, I mentioned how for me in the beginning, I was even more concerned about China and Taiwan than I was. I mean, I was concerned about Russia and Ukraine. But I actually think that, frankly, China is a far more terrifying enemy. Uh And I think the implications of them trying to do the same thing in Taiwan has even greater consequences for the world. Uh, So on Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, I do another show with a gentleman by Thomas Nadrowski, who's he's not an academic, but in his profession, he's the guy who grew up in communist Poland and has spent his career traveling around the world. He's been in almost every country of the world and assessing risk. So he understands geopolitics personally,
0: mm-hmm.
1: he understands it professionally, he understands it politically, and he understands it economically. He and I do a show every Wednesday at 11 a.m. on Beams called Tyranny Today, because the march of tyranny is a, is a steady and perhaps even quickening uh, march today. Mm-hmm. And you can get to that by going to beams.live/ tyranny and these shows are free they're interactive um and people who who come and watch thomas uh you know we have a regular audience they're just blown away by his assessment of you know he's he lives in the u.s today he's a u.s citizen you know he'll draw make it contextual for us in the west in the u.s and europe but um you know, his insights into the world and what's happening. For instance, tomorrow, uh, on when, this coming Wednesday, we'll be talking about the 20th, com- the, the 20th Communist Party uh, convention that just happened. I'm, I'm not saying the name right, but, you know, mm-hmm. they just had their, their big uh, Communist Party convention. We'll be talking about the relevance of, of that. What does it mean for the next stage of life in Russia? What does it mean for Taiwan and, and the rest of the world? And, and it's not going to be good unless we're prepared for it.
0: Well, you're right. We could talk forever, but I'm afraid that uh, we're we're getting to a point now where people need to, uh, and people who are still still listening are going to go. I'm going to put all this information that uh, you gave me with these beams shows uh, on the card at the end of the YouTube, and I'll put it in some show notes and in the other uh, applications and so forth. I want everybody to buy the book because it just it just knocks me out. As I said at the beginning, it's like. You're writing about history as it's actually unfolding.
1: I I don't even know how you begin uh, something such a project, but you you can't imagine what it's like to get up in the morning, open you know Google News or whatever or Twitter or whatever, and go, you know, holy crap! We talked about that in the book, (laughs) and you know, we only finished the book two months ago, so it's not, you know, it it is literally unfolding before our eyes. And 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 if I can say two last things, yes, please. It's ironic to me that I'm talking to you about a book about bringing democracy to Russia. And we're struggling with it here. That's for sure. You know, please, please, please vote. Please go and vote. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I am going to tell you that if you're concerned about things like what's happening in Ukraine, you know, as we speak, we're hearing things from our leaders in Washington, they support it. They don't support it. They're on the fence. They're t- talking about appeasement. If you have strong feelings about what happens in Ukraine and other issues that are important to you, make sure who you're going to vote for represents your views. Don't just assume it, because I think it's getting murkier and murkier about who stands where, whether we ag- agree or disagree hundred percent, just please go vote. Because as a scholar named Timothy Snyder says, and I'm not going to quote this exactly right, but he basically says, nobody knows the last time they got to vote. Yeah. You know, When the hand of dictatorship or tyranny falls and you no longer get to vote, you don't get an alert on your phone the week before, the month before, or the election before. It just goes away because for whatever reason, the people didn't fight for it. And one of the ways you fight for it is you get your butt out of the chair and you go vote.
0: Yeah, and if you and if you care enough to vote, please care enough to educate yourself.
1: Yes, exactly, exactly right,
0: exactly right. Vote, and don't just vote on the, you know, because based on what people are saying on Facebook. So what was the second point?
1: Well, the second thing I was going to say is, you know, I look at this book as really part of a movement. I've written this is my twenty-first book. And the yeah. first 20 were about the book. I wanted people to buy the book because, you know, a little money would end up in my bank account when they were yeah. done. Yeah, of course. I, I, yes, I would like to be paid for writing the book, but that's not what it's about. And it's not about that for Ili either. This book is just part of a larger movement. This Congress in Warsaw, uh, it supports that. It all supports giving the Russian people a shot at having democracy and getting us behind them as a movement. So that's really what this book is. When you buy this book, or check it out of the library or, you know, however you get it and talk about it online and share it with your friends. It's not about the book. It's about the movement. And, and I, it, I think it's pretty clear from the things you and I have said, you know, when Russia is a free country, the impact of that on the world yeah. is incalculable. And that's the world I want to live in.
0: So, Greg, thank you so much. My pleasure. Really, really, really an enjoyable hour. And I wish we could take more time. We could take more time. But I think that we've done more than enough to uh, gather, uh, uh, you know, the curiosity and the the passion behind uh, you and Ilya and and what you have to say. Uh, Again, the book is called Does Putin Have to Die? The Story of How Russia Becomes a Democracy After Losing to Ukraine. And uh, I'll tell you what, I'm going to be in touch because When we start to get inkling, uh, when we start to get information about that Congress in Warsaw, I want to get you back on the phone, on the radio and say,
1: how about if, uh, how about if I give you a report from there? Cause I'll, that'd be fabulous. That'd be wonderful.
0: Yeah. I wouldn't miss it for the world.